0: Hello and welcome to the Take 15 Podcast. I'm Lauren Foster and this is the show where we bring you short conversations with some of the world's most thoughtful and accomplished people. This week I'm especially excited to introduce to you my guest Jan van Eck, CEO of Van Eck, an investment management firm. You really are in for a treat. I found Jan to be incessantly curious and deeply knowledgeable, especially on one of his favorite topics, history and U.S. presidents. Our conversation spans more than 200 years, from the founding of America's financial system to the history of Vanek and up to the present day, with the COVID-19 pandemic and the upcoming presidential election in the U.S. Along the way, Jan discusses gold investing, China ETFs, esports, and more. We packed a lot into our short time together. Be sure to stick around to the end. We play History in Five, where Jan tells listeners five things we need to know about Ulysses Grant, the falsely maligned general and 18th U.S. president. I really enjoyed speaking with Jan, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Jan Vanek, welcome.
1: Thank you so much. It's great to be here.
0: So, this is such an interesting time to be having this conversation. You know, we're sitting down virtually, of course, at the end of July. Um, and as you know, gold just surged to an all time high. And gold investing really is part of VanEck's DNA. I mean, your firm launched the first uh, gold stock fund in 1968 and the first gold miners ETF in 2006. So, I'm wondering, could you just start there? Give us some background and tell us about the founding of the firm that bears your name.
1: Sure. Well, the firm was founded in uh, 1955 by my father, John Van Eck. And he basically thought, uh, he was a big picture thinker, and he saw the trends in Europe and Japan, their uh, accelerated growth, their rebuilding after World War II as an exciting investment opportunity. Americans weren't really big into investing overseas back then. Um, and then in his 40s, he was uh, studying economics at NYU at night and studied with a monetarist who said, listen, inflation is going to come here to the United States. And so he switched his investment focus to gold in 1968, and it took a couple of years, but that worked out fantastically well in the 1970s. As you know, gold went from $35 an ounce to over $800 an ounce over that time period, with the, really the two worst inflationary uh, episodes in U.S. history. So, I think that is um, you know, kind of important because we do play in the gold markets still, but also, his perspective on looking outside what I call it the, the confines of the Bloomberg and seeing what are the trends in political uh, you know political practices or in technology that make us may potentially rethink how we put our portfolios together.
0: Okay. You've been bullish on gold since last summer. um, And just in May, you said it's not too late to own gold. Um, Since then, it's breached a technical level of uh, $1,800 an ounce. I think that's the first time since 2011. Is it too late to get gold exposure?
1: Uh, Not at all. I think that what gold is reacting to in this bull market is, uh, and and let let me take a step back. So, gold can actually perform when it's competing against real interest rates. And when inflation is very high, like in the 70s, real interest rates were negative. So, meaning you lost your purchasing power if you held it in the bank and only got paid whatever it was, 4%. When inflation was 8%, you were losing 4% purchasing power. So, gold did very well during those cycles. In the last 20 years, we've been dealing more with deflation, meaning interest rates are so low that even though inflation is low, interest rates are lower. So again, you're not, uh, you're, you're not giving up a lot by owning gold, because gold does not pay uh, an interest rate, as you know. So, looking at the most recent cycles, uh, you have different kinds of moves, but the move after the great financial crisis, which is what I analogize today to, was about 150% upward move in the price of bullion. And again, the fundamentals are that the central bank of the United States and other central banks have massively expanded their balance sheet and money supply which should trickle it trickled into asset price inflation, as we learned over the last decade, and not into goods and services inflation, but still, it benefited gold. So, again, 10 years ago, gold went up 150%. If you take this recent gold low of about $1,300 an ounce, and you add 150% on top of that, you get over $3,000 an ounce. So, that is kind of becoming my base case scenario for this gold move and it was reinforced as you say i'm certainly not a technician but i do gold is one of those assets where you really kind of want to look at technicals and and that reinforcement of how gold just went right through those technical barriers that had been very very strong 10 years ago was a very positive sign
0: Great. I'd love to talk a little bit about ETFs. I was just looking in the news this week and I saw uh, that uh, it was the 2020 Mutual Fund Industry and ETF Awards and Ivanek took home the trophy for the ETF Provider of the Year um, as well as uh, the thematic ETF of the Year, the year for the Vanek Vectors Video Game and Esports ETF. So congratulations on that. Um, take us back in time a little bit. Um, what made, motivated the firm's move into ETFs? And how do you think about the philosophy behind launching new ETFs?
1: Well, ETFs uh, uh, are just an attractive investment vehicle for for especially for Americans, because you generally don't have to pay capital gains until you sell the ETF. Number one, fees are low and they're, they're very transparent. So you really absolutely know what you're getting. So they're very attractive. And we've been kind of seeing the, the industry grow. I think what eventually pushed us into starting a gold share ETF was uh, was fear, basically <laughs> that someone else would do a gold share ETF, and um, and and then we would be stuck just offering an actively managed fund. And indeed, um, that luckily we were the first to launch. It became very popular, GDX immediately. And I think it, it would be very hard for a second to market to come to 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 uh, to compete against GDX. What I would say is my philosophy also earlier days in in the ETF business is there were so many mutual funds that did the similar thing. And I said, listen, if we're going to be one of the smaller players in this little niche of the market, let's not just copy each other. Let's only come out with ETFs that are new. And so, the first uh, 25 or so of our ETFs were original, uh, meaning there were no existing ETFs in in those particular categories. So, that was... uh, that was our approach.
0: I've also heard you refer to your approach as handcrafted beers, which I, I love that analogy. I think it's really great.
1: Yeah, we didn't you know, go after just the major indices in the sectors. Um, and, and also, when we constructed the ETFs, you really have to understand the market structure uh, that you're dealing with, so fixed income markets, make sure you have enough liquidity uh, in terms of the index that you're tracking, so if you get a lot of market turbulence or inflows or outflows, you can handle them. And you know every market is different. U.S. equities is different from high yield debt is different from investment grade. We do a lot of international and commodity related investments. So unfortunately, yes, you have to kind of. Design or, or craft the, that ETF one one at a time. It's a little less efficient, but um, you know it, it makes us think through all the issues to the best we can.
0: Can you spend a little bit of time talking about the you know the ETF that just won the award, the Vector's Video Gaming and Esport, Esports ETF?
1: Sure. Um, you know, the video games are really going through a, a, a transition from just being the console things with the clickers that you sit in your basement and play to being more mobile oriented. And the, the other aspect that I find very interesting is the social nature of it. In other words, you're not just going to play on, you know, play Tetris uh, on your, you know, your computer, which you might have done 30 years ago. It's just a way of engaging with your friends. And sometimes just having conversations. Um, the uh, you know I I will say that some of my sons have had conversations with their girlfriends while playing video games, um, and sometimes they, the girlfriends were playing the video games at the same time. So that social al- element I think is is really important. So to us, it, sure it was a little bit of a of a, a niche. I mean, if you could call it. I think there's about 150 billion dollars of sales from this type of activity. But we, we also saw it evolving further um, as, as a way that people would engage digitally. And uh, you know, we think that trend continues, obviously, with the COVID lockdown, um, video gaming has, has taken off and accelerated to an extent it wouldn't have normally.
0: Yes, with two sons of my own, I can attest to that trend. I don't see it stopping anytime soon. So you know we can't have a conversation these days without somewhat touching on COVID. Um, and back in April, you were on the firm's you know Trends with Benefits podcast, and I'm wondering what has changed since then. Sort of how are you thinking about the coronavirus today, um, and has it changed since a few months ago?
1: Sure. So um, maybe I just want to give in one caveat or surgeon surgeon general's warning. I'm not a portfolio manager, but I sit with our invest active investment teams and have for my entire career. So I get a lot of their thoughts. And um, I don't want to blame them, but I just want people to know that I'm not actually directing money. But a couple of years ago, I said, listen, I'm sitting here and I think it would be useful for me to summarize kind of what we're seeing in the markets in a, in a kind of usable way. And uh, you know, during that drawdown, for sure, the thing that came to mind was was lack of confidence and lack of visibility. We had no idea what was going to happen. But in March, we, you know, If you looked at China, which we should have been doing for two or three months, and we would have realized what was about to hit us, but we didn't, uh, you saw kind of what social distancing or lockdown would do to the cases of new rates and deaths. And at least we, you could guess that it would give us visibility about the, uh, about the disease um, and, and its spread. And so, yeah, that was our, our view, that to be nervous in March, but we would have visibility in April. And I think what the market has done since then is entirely rational. Uh, you know, always the market is looking towards next year's earnings, not this year's earnings. And the companies that weren't skipping a beat, their stocks didn't skip a beat. And the companies that are massively hit by this uh, economic shutdown are reflecting that risk, whether it's back banks and bad loans uh, or or the oil sector because of less transportation. So, that was completely rational. Uh, I think today, as we sit here in the summer, I think a lot of those gains have been baked in. So, you know, it's natural to me. that so the market will take a little bit of a wait and see. And I am a little worried about how unemployment does, it's certainly not going to be V-shaped in terms of unemployment. And that's the speed bump I'm I'm concerned about for the market going forward that policymakers may have to address in the fall or maybe early next year, depending on how the election goes.
0: Mm -hmm. So I'm glad you just uh, raised China a few minutes ago, because I'd love to spend a bit of time there. Um, You've been to China something like 50 times, is that right?
1: Yeah, I was, I was lucky to travel to Asia in uh, 92 and uh, said, whoa, <laughs> not something you read about in the newspaper. Um, and again, it's kind of in the spirit of our firm. But, um, yeah, we st- I started traveling there uh, once we realized that they probably were going to become, you know, major economic power again.
0: So what is your outlook on China and how do you think investors should be thinking about China right now?
1: Well, I've got a very strong opinion that uh, China can be kind of summarized in two charts, which I put on our website. Um, You can just Google me and uh, how's China doing? And you have to break it down into their manufacturing, or I'll call it Old China. And uh, the consumer sector, you know, new China. And I'm not unique in that, but I'll probably be unique in pointing out that if you look at the manufacturing PMI, it does go into contractionary territory. So it goes below the 50 mark. And that happened in 2015 when oil prices went down to $25 a barrel. And it happened um, in, in 2018 as well. So I think that's a, that's a signal for the economy. The other thing is looking at interest rates. China, which obviously we care about in the U.S., and in China, the private sector pays a higher interest rate than the state-owned enterprises. So, what China's telling us now is actually surprising good news. And I'll focus just on one statistic, which is their interest rates have actually drifted up. In the last two months, which means the central bank is so confident in the economic recovery there that they're not feeling that they have to stimulate uh, their, their, their uh, monetary policy. But compared to the United States, where the Fed is says they're not even thinking about thinking raising about raising interest rates. So you know, I think that's that's remarkable. Listen, that's great news for investors because my whole point is you don't have to like China, you don't have to invest in China. But as the second largest economy in the world, it will impact all of your portfolio. So, uh, so, so the fact that they seem to be getting on their feet, um, political noise aside, that's really that's that's relatively good news for global markets.
0: So last summer, the sort of the trade war between the U.S. and China really dominated headlines. And towards the end of last year, you cautioned investors to ignore politics in their portfolios. So let's forward, fast forward to this year. It's 2020, it's an election year. Um, what's your advice to investors who may be tempted to look at politics as they also evaluate their portfolios?
1: Yeah, so, uh... I kind of maybe separate politics from policy. It absolutely matters what fiscal policy is, meaning is government spending money, or what their monetary policy, what's the Fed doing. And I think that determines the the weather, if you will, for the financial markets. So, that matters. Uh, What I think doesn't matter is a lot of the noise back and forth, maybe even who gets elected. What matters is how will policies change. So, for example, in the U.S., if, uh, if Joe Biden gets elected, it's not clear that the Federal Reserve will change its stimulative policies. I mean, we're still going to want to get more jobs going. I, I can't imagine he would be pushing for the Fed to raise interest rates 300 basis points. Right? So, that would be supportive for financial assets. I think the question is... What does he do on the tax and regulatory side? And and, and, and that will matter. But I think um, in the China context, there was just a lot of noise about the trade war. And there's a lot of noise about China in general on a lot of different levels, which, listen, it matters. But for, for politics, let's just take the recent example of what happened in Hong Kong and the uh, new security law there. I mean, if you looked at a chart of the financial markets, it would, it would be a blip completely unnoticeable. Now, again, so that's why I'm just saying, uh, the, the last and, the, and the, the main reason, I guess, to ignore politics is you can't predict it at all. <laughs> I mean, you, could, you know, politics is unpredictable. And, and if you start moving your money around based on who you think is going to win elections, I think that's very unlikely to be a successful strategy.
0: So, Jan, we're going to move from sort of macro themes to, to micro themes, and in particular, people. Uh, I've heard you say that the investment world is broken up into two types of people, historians and statisticians. Explain what you mean by that.
1: Listen, I, I mean, I think, you know, the CFA is great. Um, but, you know, my kind of take on the investment world is there's so many, many unanswered questions, you know, so... Asset allocation is one of them. I mean, we are so lucky in the U.S. that interest rates have been falling for 30 years, and a 60/40 portfolio has worked brilliantly. Uh, That's just not always true in history. It's not true for many countries. Japan still hasn't reached all-time highs in its stock market, but it's just not even true in U.S. history. So, I think my main point. Is, is if you take a if you take that skepticism as a historian, look for change. You know, some historians like, oh, this is repeating itself. That's not that's not the historical exercise. It's looking for how is the world going to radically change. How is the U.S., which has been was on the gold standard for almost two hundred years, suddenly going to change that and let gold prices go to the moon? Right, So, what are the potential changes out there? And so, that's basically why I call myself a historian. The reason I kind of make fun of statisticians is you see a lot of analysis out there comparing indices and price movements and economic statistics. And those things, even of themselves, change. My, my favorite example is the Emerging Markets Index. Emerging markets 20 years ago was Thailand, Singapore, Korea. Mexico and Brazil. Now, it's dominated by China. Asia is 80% of that index. So, to say that, compare, do statistics on that index against anything over the last 20 years, to me, is an exercise in frustration. So, anyway, that's the, that's kind of my take on. on and, I, and I notice that investors often do fall into those two camps of being maybe more open to change and other people who are basing their analysis on the fact that two lines should either go together or go apart. So
0: let's stick on this theme of historians. Um, I know that you're a student of presidential history. You love to read biographies of uh, US presidents. I think one of your favorite books is Gene Smith's 2001 Grant biography. So we're going to play something I'm going to call History in Five. Um, what are five things we need to know about Grant?
1: Okay, well, I just want to say'm I'm not I'm not by any way uh, means a historian. I, I like to fill in my areas of ignorance, so that's why I started reading some history. But uh, there are a couple of things struck me about Grant when I read that biography. I mean, first of all, Um, he kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, he was basically unemployed and then rose through the ranks when he was a general in the Civil War. So, that kind of underdog aspect of him appealed to me. Secondly, you know, he won the Civil War. Uh, I mean, Lincoln was president, but there was really lack of momentum, a lot of gridlock, a lot of politics going on in the generals um, on the Atlantic seaboard. And Grant's tremendous progress uh, along the Mississippi, uh, really, I think, you know, he, he helped win the war. You actually have to win the battles. And uh, you, know, you could say, well, it was inevitable, the North was more rich or more powerful. But you know, Grant actually did it, and he was recognized for that during his lifestyle, lifetime. Um, I think you know, his being a general, he seems to have got that art of surprise and his great Vicksburg victory um, in, in terms of just pushing the advantage and keep, keep on pushing, keep surprising your enemy. Um, you know, stylistically, I liked the fact that he dressed down and he walked amongst the troops. So, you know, he didn't go on the big white horse and announce himself as a general. He was extremely low-key. Um, I would point out in the context of America's historical struggle with slavery and the issues there, there were a lot of good things to say for him. You know, when this biography was written, everyone was like, Grant's a drunk, and that's all you need to know. But he did a lot um, after the Civil War to try to bring civil rights uh, the best he could to, to the freed slaves. And uh, you know that effort faded, um, I think, to no fault of his own, and he doesn't get enough credit for that. Uh, his father-in-law was a slave owner. His, his father himself was an abolitionist, so his parents didn't come to his own wedding. Um, and, and so, he wasn't sort of brilliant in certain aspects of that, maybe earlier, but you know, he really did a lot on the balance of his life to, to overcome that. And then, as a New Yorker, and I know this is a long answer, but my last, my last thing, favorite thing is that at the turn of the century, Grant's memorial was the most popular visited tourist site in New York City. Uh, two million people went to his funeral. But uh, even for years afterwards, he was he was an all star. I mean, he was like a, a music celebrity and you know fav- favorite politician and everything all, all wrapped up uh, all wrapped up in one. So obviously, um, you know that's that's gone away, which just kind of shows you how history itself goes through ups and downs. So yes.
0: Well, we, we can't have this conversation without bringing up Alexander Hamilton. Uh, as you know, I'm sitting in Charlottesville and Monticello's up the way, Jefferson's home is there, um, and there's a bust of Alexander Hamilton in Monticello. I know that you're a fan of uh, Alexander Hamilton, and you were long before uh, it premiered on TV uh, or on the, on the stage, I guess, years ago. So tell us why you are such a, a fervent supporter of Alexander Hamilton?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I, I would say that it's more I graduated with an economics degree and didn't know what, what Alexander Hamilton had done in the United States, which to me is just a tragedy. So my I guess if yet my, my main point is learn a little bit about American financial history. I mean, the way so Hamilton, you have to know him because he basically consolidated all the debt after the uh, revolutionary war and then worked to give the us the federal government through its new constitution the ability to pay back that debt through import tariffs so he basically you know gave the U.S. government the ability to to pay for things, and he cleaned up all the all the debt. And then after that time period, you know the growth and the number of banks and all this kind of stuff. That basically the, he set the, the framework for the growth of of our financial system, which is what you know makes it so important. Uh, and you know we had uh, our first sort of central bank at that time as well. Um, I'll just very briefly point out that he had to deal with a financial crisis in in 1791 as well, and what he did is so similar to what Geithner and Paulson did um, after the Great uh, Financial Crisis ten years ago. It's it's just it's an interesting story. So I think um, I, I understand the concerns that uh, Jefferson had about concentration of power, and they were just dealing with having to get rid of, you know, King George III, but. Uh, you know, I think I think just to understand market structure is so important uh, to how you think about putting portfolios together and, you know, understanding how governments interplay with financial markets.
0: So, when we were chatting before this, you had mentioned a uh, summer internship program. Um, and I'd love for you to tell listeners a bit more about that. I thought it was fascinating.
1: Well, you know, I just… Uh, I, I guess the straw broke the camel's back in terms of my frustration on this historical point. And so uh, we have a pretty robust internship program to begin with at Van Eck with about 15 internships, which is more than we end up hiring. And we expanded it this year because more more kids were um, without internships because of the, uh, the COVID. So uh, for some reason, the uh, light bulb went off and said, I'm, I'm going to teach a history course. And, um, you know, you know, we have a lot of lunch and learns at VanEck. We love to do idea sharing. We have breakfasts. We're in Midtown nor- normally. So it's sort of in the spirit of the company. So uh, so I decided to try that this uh, this year. And uh, I've learned a lot along with the students. So it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun. And maybe I'll share that, um, you know, sort of more publicly going forward once I've got all my notes together.
0: Well, I hope so. And in the spirit of creativity, uh, one thing that your firm also does is it does these beautiful themed scarves every year. Um, so I'm wondering, have you given some thought to what theme uh, will be in 2021?
1: Oh, no, not yet. Um, yeah, we, we uh, that, that almost feels like a thing of the past, um, where we had an Alexander Hamilton tie, of course. We had a Ben Bernanke tie throwing money out of a helicopter. Um, so you know, those are some of our favorites. But I, th- I think we have to move away from ties. I, I don't, don't you think so? I, think I was gonna say, a, well, have you got a
0: scarf at least? Well, <laughs> Scarves no, would be yeah, great. so
1: we had uh, sort of carry bags, right? Okay. So you know, for, for for women. But I think we have to complete. We've had trouble because how do you put a theme like on a golf shirt or a hat? Right. Right. That seems kind of silly. So if anyone has any good ideas, please let us know, uh, because it's been it's been a lot of fun and it's more interesting, I think, than uh, you know, sending chocolates around like we used to.
0: Right. So my final question is what I call the sort of the ray of sunshine question. I started doing this, you know, once uh, we started doing these calls during COVID, and I always try and sort of end the conversation on something positive. And so for you personally, what has been the most positive outcome um, of the COVID-19 pandemic, either personally or professionally, whatever you feel?
1: Well, um, I think number one, I'd have to say more more family time. Uh, I have uh, three college age kids, just sort of generally speaking, and uh, you know the, everyone was home. And my my oldest, um, who is working now, hadn't hadn't been home for basically for ten years, so it was. Great fun spending time with them. Uh, I've really enjoyed this uh, history class with the interns as well. I mean, the benefit of Zoom is you can kind of see 30 people at the same time or whatever it is. So uh, that's been that's been really engaging, and uh, you know, I just appreciate the fact that. So many people aren't able to, uh, you know, do this work from home thing, and I'm, you know, very concerned about um, how we can get out of this as a country and get people back to work because, uh, you know, it's it's often the most vulnerable that you know that are affected by this right now. So that's the ray of sunshine is that <laughs> that we can come out of this and their lives will get better, I guess. Great. Well,
0: I really do hope you put your history class online. And Jan, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I am Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.